So Revelation chapter 14, and we'll read the first of five verses together, if I can get my Bible to that place. Okay, Revelation 14, and verse number 1. All right, almost there. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him an hundred, forty, and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with harps. And that's a great expression, isn't it? That's a lot of fun to say. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne, and before the four beasts, and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand, which were redeemed from the earth. Now these are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Today, just for a few moments, I want to talk to you about the contrast Christians should have. The contrast the Christians should have. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time we've had already to assemble together. Lord, I, I trust we've not just gone through motions, but we've sung these songs from our heart, giving thought and consideration, Lord, to the words that have come out of our mouth. Lord, I, I trust they've been uh, expressions of praise and worship and gratitude. And Lord, now I pray you'd settle our hearts to look into your word and to learn from it. Lord, we certainly would ask that you would meet with us today. And Lord, to make plain and clear the meaning of this text and Lord, that we may take away application for our lives. And so, Lord, whatever it would be that you would hope and desire to accomplish the result of our meeting together today, I, I pray, Lord, that would happen in these next few moments. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for standing. I think most of you know for a good number of years, um, I engaged in photography as a hobby. I really got that from Brother Jerry Palmer. Of course, Jerry inspired me many, many years ago to start taking pictures. And of course, um, um, when I started taking pictures, I, I, I really I didn't know what I was doing, but it was fun to learn. And I, I, I'm a lifelong learner. I, I enjoy that. And so I, I bought a DSLR camera and I started taking pictures. Really the, the primary um, object of my photography was my family. And so um, I took lots of pictures of our kids. I have a family shutterfly site and then I, there's another one we have as well. And it's just really a pictorial history of, of our family from when the kids were a little bitty and of course having grandkids. I, I just spent a little bit of time doing wildlife photography, really enjoyed that. And of course taking pictures of wildlife with my kids kind of went hand in hand. That was almost the same thing, <clears throat> but equally challenging. But you know, it's, 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 it's a really cool thing because it's artistic, you know, right brain, then it's, it's analytical and there's lots to learn. Well, one of the things that you learn about in photography is this word or this idea called contrast. Everybody knows what contrast is. When you take a picture, um, you know, you'll have tones in that picture and there'll be bright tones and dark tones. If you get too much bright tones, just it's too much contrast, it blows out the picture. Well, kind of a technical definition of contrast is the visual ratio of different tones in images. And these different tones are what create textures, highlight, 
shadows and color in the photograph. You, you want an appropriate amount of contrast. And every photo has it. And, it, and you, you need that for the picture really to make sense. Well, you know, in this world, God has really made the world and painted it with contrast himself. Life is full of it. There is the contrast of day and the contrast of night. Of course, in Oklahoma, there's an endless summer. And then there's a really cold winter. There's sunshine and there's rain. There's the sun and there's the moon. But contrast, unfortunately, also exists in the moral and ethical world. And, and that's really um, part of the fall of humanity back you know, in the days of Genesis. There are contrasts there. There's good. And you know, that which is good aligns itself with God. And, and then there's evil. And evil is that which aligns itself in antithesis to God, in, in the rejection of God. It's the darkness in the world that ignores Him. There's truth and there's lie. There's uprighteousness. And then there's ungodliness. And these contrasts exist. In the book of Revelation, chapter 14, it is that idea of contrast that really is in view here. We see a contrast to the chapters that have just come before. There's a difference here between chapters 12 and 13, which we have recently studied, and chapter 14. And the, the text opens, you know, in chapter 12 and 13 with this kind of um, brief interlude in the actions of the, of the trumpet judgments with we, you know, finding the source of the evil, of the negative contrast in the world. And chapter 14 begins with the Lord. Chapter 12 and 13 occur in the midst of the tribulation. And they bring into view the source of evil. And it's clearly identified. We see Satan engaged in his rebellious war with God and really with humanity as well. Fighting against God's purposes, fighting against God's design, which he is still obviously doing today. We see the Antichrist. We see the false prophet. We see the demonic hordes released from the abyss to do the Antichrist bidding. We see these in great measure as the source of darkness in the world, you know, really fanning the flames of our own depraved hearts in so many ways. We see the complicity of Satan's followers among humanity, who for the sake of safety, for the sake of short-term, short-sighted security, aligning themselves with the Antichrist and demonstrating their loyalty by receiving um, you know, some kind of unique mark that the Bible identifies with the number 666. I, I don't know what that mark might be, if it would be those numbers specifically. But they receive that mark upon their foreheads or their hands in some way, uh, signifying their loyalty to Him. This allows them the short-term benefit of buying and selling and makes them also, though, part of the dark world that exists at that time. No doubt giving themselves to the deception and evil practices that run rampant upon the earth, corrupting their hearts in all manner of way. And as we shall see, they will pay, pay a great price for that fealty and loyalty at the end of chapter 14. But chapter 14, in contrast to that in that darkness, we see something very, very different. We see something that's incredibly rare and precious upon the earth during this time in history's darkest hour. We see virtue. 
we see light. We see goodness. We see godliness. And we see those who follow Christ. Remember contextually, the apocalypse, the book of Revelation, was written to seven churches. These were seven churches that existed in the region of Asia Minor. These churches, and you, if you read the book of First and Second Peter, to help you have context, these were churches that really contained Christians for the most part who had probably been dislocated from Jerusalem and Judea because of persecution. They were sent there as a punishment for their Christianity. But they were despised and hated there as well and suffered ongoing persecution in these churches surrounded by the Romans and the pagans. At this time, emperor worship was a very big deal. And those who would not pay homage to the emperor going into the temple there were often severely persecuted. They were denied many of the basic necessities of life. And, and so this is the audience that John is writing to. He's encouraging these, the membership of these seven churches to remain loyal, to be true, to serve Christ, even in the great difficulty they were facing. And, and so what happens here, he's providing this contrast to encourage the followers of Christ in that day to model themselves after those described here in our text in a future prophetic day. Like them, these future followers of Christ, 144,000, which we'll talk about in a moment, they would experience incredible opposition and persecution too, just like the members of Asia Minor. Um, and John's writing to them to stay faithful, to be true. He's basically, I know you're going through hardship. I know you're being persecuted. I know there's this ongoing, almost daily temptation, you know, just to, to bring some reprieve to your life and, and maybe going to the temple there for the, the emperor is not such a big deal and maybe bending the knee over here. You know, I mean, you, you can still... You know, maybe honor Christ, but you can, you know, dip your colors here, compromise in some small way. You know, but John's saying, don't do that. Have fealty to Christ. John expected the Christians of Asia Minor to do what these future uh, army of witnesses would do. There was strong temptation for early Christians to compromise with Rome in order to increase their personal safety for their family. Now, think about that. Not just for yourself, but for your family. To secure greater positions and economic gain in society, and for the for the end means of pleasure and hedonism, if they would just compromise, if they would, let me say it this way, if they would just dim their contrast, if they could just blend in a little bit more, if they would engage the same practices of Rome, then they would diminish the hardships they would face, the threat of peril would go away, they could be more accepted. And what the world was offering maybe could be theirs. They just needed to dim the light. They just needed to lessen the contrast. But John writes the vision, the final days on earth, when evil like then would be pinnacle. The temptations to succumb, to compromise would be great. And he, he holds up a group of individuals who maintained their contrast, who maintained their light, who maintained their witness, who did not dip their colors, who stayed true to Christ in the most difficult hours imaginable. He was holding up an example of how true believers should behave. He, he was saying, this is what real authentic Christianity should look like. So if you look with me in verse number one of chapter 14, we'll begin our study of this contrast. And so in verse 1, instead of the Antichrist standing upon the seashore, summoning evil upon the earth, 
we see a future picture of Christ in His imminent second advent. We understand that Jesus Christ will come next in the clouds of the air, in the parousia that will be for you and I, and we shall join Him, we shall be come together in the air, and so be with Him forever. But that will initiate in part the great tribulation and His second advent. That's when Jesus Christ will come and set foot upon this planet once again and claim it for His own. And that's what is imminently pictured in our text. Jesus standing on Mount Zion, there in Jerusalem, uh, with 144,000 who have stood by His side during the darkest days of earth's history and proven their loyalty to Him. This event, um, described the text, not yet having happened in our study of the book of Revelation, but would happen imminently, depicts Christ and His triumph over the devil, over trial, over tribulation, redeeming and rescuing not only humanity, but the universe as well, and starting a new created order. We see here Christ standing triumphantly at the dawn of the millennial kingdom with 144,000 who have remained loyal and true through the tribulation. These men are examples of what you and I should look like, of how you and I should live our lives. Remember the 144,000 of the tribulation were the first fruits of Jewish salvation. The book of Daniel tells us, uh, you know, that history will kind of unfold. And then we know from the New Testament that there'll be this rapture event. And then there's yet seven years of Jewish time to be fulfilled. Uh, God will miraculously save these men, which the numbers are uh, 144,000. That is representative of 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. And they will be His very special evangelists. They will be His witnesses in this dark hour. And God will place upon them a, a, a protection, a supernatural protection that will allow them to witness for Him. And uh, you know, for, for a moment, the time of the Gentiles is over and national salvation will ultimately come to the Jews through the preaching of these men. They will be His ambassadors in this dark day, spreading the gospel with those who will remain upon the earth. And the Bible indicates that a great number of people will be saved. But this happens in the context of incredible opposition. Today I'm preaching. You chose to be here. Um, if you were to make a decision for Christ today, we would rejoice with you. We'd be so happy for you. If you would recognize that you're a sinner and Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins, uh, that, you know, all of our sins were imputed to Him and all His righteousness imputed to us. If you were to make that decision today, we'd be so happy for you. Amen. And you'd probably go to work and, and we, we, we hope that you'd begin to conform yourself to the image of Christ. But my guess is here in America, you wouldn't suffer a lot of persecution for that. Making this decision in tribulation will probably cost you your life. If jobs are a thing, it, may, it will cost you your job. You, you would be putting your family at risk. And I mean mortal risk. And yet these men spread the gospel to people who hear it. And they accept that. And they and these men together experience incredible persecution for the honor and the privilege of serving Christ. For this witness during these dark years, these people become, this is kind of neat, the first human inhabitants of the millennial kingdom. Now, you're not going to be there, but I'm going to be six foot two, <laughs> dark complexed, and have hair. 
and, uh, and I'm going to be able to sing. And I'm, really, I'm probably most excited about that. I'm going to sing. And we'll have our glorified bodies. And we'll be there serving in some capacity. But, but those who are saved and make it through the end of the tribulation, they're going to be the first human inhabitants to walk in. And, and these men, I just, just got to get the picture. Human history's unfolded. This, this God's judgment's fallen in the tribulation. This, the war with Satan has, has been overcome. And Christ is standing here at the dawn of the millennial kingdom. It's like this great this moment and 144,000 stand with him as they walk into the millennial kingdom. What an unbelievable privilege and honor. But the idea here is they're doing that because of their perseverance and what they have done. So very quickly, with the time we have remaining, I want to take a few moments and I want us to consider what I believe that John wanted the seven churches to consider in the writing of these few verses of the apocalypse. And the first thought I want you to think about with me today is this, is that true Christians, genuine followers of Christ, entrust their care to Christ no matter what the world brings their way. Okay. Christians aren't fair-weather believers. We're not here because Eastland's doing great and you know, we're kind of on a roll and times are good. No, our, our commitment is to Jesus Christ. And, you know, we understand that when we are saved, we are securing for ourselves through the provision of Christ, you know, forgiveness of sins, a home in heaven. But we're also casting our lot with Christ, no matter what the world may bring. We're making a decision to follow Him whatsoever He may lead. And we're, we're believing this, no matter what may come, that you and I rest and reside in the hand of God. And life can be good and life can be bad. Life, life can bring blessing and life can bring hardship. But the reality of this is no matter what life brings us, that passes through the hands of our Savior and we are protected. Now we may not live a long life or we may. We may never know disease or we may know a lot of it. But no matter what happens, we are, the name of Christ is not only written in our, in our head, but it is written on our hearts. And we belong to Him. And we are to rest in that knowledge and to serve Him no matter what life may bring. The 144,000 in salvation and conversion made a decision to trust Christ no matter what. Live or die. And for all they knew is a distinct possibility in serving Christ, they may die. They chose not to be tempted to diminish their message, to alter their course, to, to, to change their contrast because of the hardship of the world around them. These were men who were a, a chosen army of witnesses for Christ. Again, they, they had the name of Christ written in their, in their foreheads and in their heart. This most likely was something visible. Literally, I, I, I don't know how that would work. This again would be in contrast to the mark of the beast that was also present in this time. But in context, these were people who were identifying with Christ. More than that, these were, these, these were men who were identifying God's purposes and being the recipients of His protection. But, but don't misunderstand, that does not mean that they did not experience deprivation in life or hunger or thirst, or hardship. They may, they may have had to go without a home. Like these men probably experienced bodily hurt. 
And this is what Christianity does. Now, I need you to think through that with me for a moment. We're going to serve him no matter what. Okay? Now, the last several years have really challenged that notion of safety first. Now, I'm all about being safe. I'm all about being smart. But push comes to shove, and loyalties have to be decided. I'm going to, I'm going to side with Christ. I, I, I'm going to be where He tells me to be, and I'm going to do what He tells me to do, and I'm going to, I'm going to be a witness even when it's hard, and I'm, going to, I'm not going to forsake the assembly of, of, of the saints together, and I'm still going to give even though when money gets tight. You get the idea? That's what Christians do. We entrust what we have to Christ no matter what the world may bring our way. If you are a follower of Christ, your life starts by faith in God's grace. It continues with this promise that we too are marked. Now, I don't bear one on my forehead, but I have a mark in my heart that I belong to Christ. And Romans chapter, Romans chapter 8 teaches me that nothing that I do or you do or this world does can take that mark away from me. And it's a beautiful text to read. It won't take time for the sake of brevity today. But I'm His. And no matter what life brings, I belong to Him. Now, see, that's a theological truth. I am safe. I am sealed. I am secured. It's done. It is forever. What God does cannot be undone. But that theological truth ought to bleed into our practical life. In other words, there's no place in the child of God to have fear. The most often frequented negative command in the Bible is fear not. We ought not fear because our lives are hid in Christ and God. It is unbecoming and unlike the 144,000 for us to worry, for us to fret, for us to stress over the issues of life. Jesus over and over encouraged us to, to seek first the kingdom of God and everything else. Because we're in the hands of God would be provided for us. We're not to be like the Gentiles who race after these things. It's a contrast. There's a way the world lives and there's a way the child of God lives. And it's not that we can't have things and do things, but that is not to be the primary pursuit of our life. We belong to Him. We give ourselves to serving Him no matter what life brings. Whether it's disease and difficulty, long life or short, the truth remains we belong to Him. No man, no circumstances could pluck us out of the Lord's hand. Now that knowledge result in a contrast. There should be a peace in our hearts, a joy upon our face. There ought to be a rest that we have that when the world looks at us, they wonder what's different about you? How can you go through this, these hard times, these perilous times and show so little concern? Because I belong to Him. I know where I'm going when I die. I know what the future holds for me. And my long is, life is long or short. I, you know, I, I have things I'd like to do and things I'd like to see. But in the end, I'm going to be in heaven with Christ. And that truth ought to reign through in my life in so many ways. Secondly, we see a truth in verses 2 and 3. We see in our text yet another song of worship. We've seen several of these in our study of Revelation. This time, this time not necessarily sung primarily by angels, the four great creatures or the 24 elders, but by the triumphant 144,000. And this is a song on earth, now listen, that was heard in the courts of heaven. 
that makes me think, you know, we sing to each other in here. You know, Laura sang to us a little while ago, it was beautiful. And we're singing, we hear it. But this is not the only audience listening to the songs that we sing. And that, that ought to inform our involvement in our music service here, in the way we sing. That's a whole other message. This is a song sung upon earth, heard in the courts of heaven. There's some application here for us in what's happening in these verses as these men sing and these harps are playing and the court of heaven is listening. The application is this. True followers of Christ praise and worship our Lord. Our hearts are glad and full of thankfulness no matter the hardship we go through. In other words, let me say it this way. Life and all this difficulty ought to never diminish our song. Life and its difficulty should never diminish our song. It's not to say life isn't hard. It's just, it's not going to take my song away. It's not going to take my joy away. It's not going to take away what the Lord's done for me in here. These people have gone through the unimaginable, terrible cruelty of hell on earth for seven years. Literally, hell on earth. We've talked about that. <clears throat> They've gone through more than any of us can imagine. They've experienced and, and, and endured more than the world's ever seen. And they finish that race with a song. <laughs> you know, the, the application here is this. That's the contrast we're to have with this lost world. We as Christians are not to allow negativity and evil, and, and, and I mean even real hardship, diminish the song that's in our heart. We may not always feel like singing it, but we can't lose it. We can't lose our joy. We can't lose our song. We can't lose our praise. We can't lose our worship. And I know that some things in life really challenge that, that really press us and hurt us, that can create great angst in our hearts. All too often when life goes bad, so too does our hearts. I've said that a thousand times. Our spirits sometimes are negatively impacted by genuine grief. And there's, and there's a season to cry. And there's a season to, to, to grieve. And there's a, there's a season maybe even to be, I don't know, appropriately angry about something. But we have to, look up here, we have to move forward. We, we still have a home in heaven and, and nothing of ultimate value has been taken away. And if even if loved ones have been lost, we're going to be reunited with them again. All too often, we, we grow bitter, right? We're angry. We protest the genuine unfairness of life. And it is unfair. It's a fallen world. People backstab us. They're mean to us. They misunderstand us. They assign false motive. We think it's so unfair. And we think, man, I'm serving Christ, but this is what I get. I'm forgotten. I'm forsaken. We lose our light. The contrast begins to dim when challenging things come. But Christianity isn't supposed to look like that. Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. Events don't define me. My faith defines me. I am who I am because of who He is. And I don't care what the world brings my way. 
I have a reason to have joy and to triumph. We, you and I are supposed to not conform to the world, but transform above it. Transform, trans, above. We're supposed to form not to the world and to its circumstances and its cruelty and its meanness and all that's unfortunate. That's just, that's what the world does. In contrast, Christians experience these same things. We're not immune to them, but we transform. We, we, we overcome. We are hooper nike. We are more than overcomers in Christ because what He has done for us. That's what these 144,000 did. They got to the end of this unimaginable difficult journey and they stood on a mountaintop and they sang. And we ought to go to our graves singing. We ought to finish every day singing. We ought, to, we ought to go through all of life, even life's most difficult moments, and gather ourselves and ask God for grace and then thank the Lord and praise Him for His goodness. Amen. That's what Christians do. <clears throat> if I was asked this question today, are you angry? Are you mad? Are you bent? Do you feel unfairly treated? Are you bitter, despondent, depressed? Have you allowed the world to take away your joy and your song? I want to tell you that doesn't have to be your fate. That there, the power of grace is greater than all those things. And you can rise above that. Christianity is supposed to be defined by love and grace and hope, not the circumstances of life. We are to be what we are in Christ because of what He's done for us. And that is our great goal. And then thirdly, very quickly, the, the last thing I, hear, I see here in verses 4 and 5, real Christians show their contrast by demonstrating their allegiance and loyalty to Christ in everyday life. Verses 4 and 5, these are they which were not defiled. And the text says here in this context with women, they're virgins or they've been pure. They follow the Lamb. They've been redeemed. They're the first fruits of, of, of this time in history. And, and, and here's how they live. There's no guile. There's no hypocrisy in the way they live. There's no, there's no lie or deceit in their mouth. They, they live understanding that the throne and its eyes are upon them. These first Jewish disciples are described as pure, not defiled. That means they're without moral corruption. The biblical language, the metaphor often used uh, in, in, for Israel was they were unfaithful that they were harlots, that they, they were adulterous. They, they, they served God in synchronism and also served Baal. They, 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 they had lots of guile. They had lots of hypocrisy. And if it served their purposes, they, they had no problem lying. But these men are, are contrasted in the biblical language as they are not defiled and they are pure. And, and whatever God has demanded of them, whatever their faith has asked of them, whatever moral purity is, is required, they have done those things. They've not corrupted themselves with the world. The minor prophets often described God's people as defiled and immoral. And that was true practically in, in the fact that they gave themselves to heathen practices, but also they corrupted their hearts. Here, real followers of Christ are described as pure. No doubt that means literally free of sexual sin, but pure of heart as well. These men have not corrupted themselves with the evil culture of their day. These were days of great delusion, no doubt of great immorality, but these individuals in mass did not yield the temptation to corrupt themselves 
because they followed the lamb. <clears throat> Look up here for a second. It's so easy to corrupt ourselves with this world. We can adopt its negative attitudes. We can share its negative spirit. And I, I, I tried to warn us about that a thousand times in a thousand applications. The most precious thing we have is our hearts and keeping it right. But it's so easy to allow it to become corrupted and negative and evil. The temptation to be unethical for advantage, to be immoral and pure, to share the, the darkness of the world. It, it's all around us, but that's not what we do. We go where the lamb leads. Well, where does the lamb lead? Well, in part, wherever this book tells us to go. See, this is the guidelines for life. So where do we go? Where this, where this book directs us to go? Our feet are on this path. We follow these words. We, we do what this book says. Even when it's hard, even when it feels maybe unreasonable, even when it challenges our pocketbook, even when it challenges our commitment and faithfulness, where, where are we going? Where he leads. In other words, look up here. We do what he asks us to do, whatever it is. That's what Christians do. That means in those most challenging moments when you don't want to forgive, you forgive. Because that's what the book says to do. When times are really hard and strapped and, and, and you want to guard the pocketbook, that's not an option for Christians. You're still generous. When, when you don't want to be kind to that person who's been really mean to you, you know what Christians do? They follow the lamb. There was no guile in his mouth. When people hurled insults on him and spit upon him, he said, Lord, forgive them. They know not what they do. See, real Christians don't just, it's not just the big picture. It's every single day. Your spouse is unkind to you. The temptation is there to be unkind back. But that's not what Christians do. They follow the lamb in his way. They do what he asks us to do. You with me on that? When, when the, the temptation there may be a little unethical, we back away from that because that's not where he goes. We follow the lamb. We identify with Christ. Our, in, our behavior is informed. Our purposes are guided by him. So we're honest without deceit. There's no guiles, no hypocrisy. We don't live one way in here and another way out there. We're the same person. We're authentic. We're genuine. We're, we're, we, we strive to be genuinely good. We share our light. We hold on to our contrast. We, we shine forth in a dark world, understanding that the throne is watching. Christ, genuine Christianity lives out its life every day in every way before the throne. In verse 1, Christians bear the Father's name. In the Greek, it means we are to share his character. <clears throat> that means we also identify with his reputation. I have in that back row a number of children and some add-ons. <clears throat> and they have my name. And they have my inheritance. And I don't, I don't just mean that, you know, by the vast wealth I'm going to leave them one day. <laughs> I mean, they have my life. Yeah, I, I gave all of them, you know, the, the best of the, the 20, 25 years they spent with me. It wasn't perfect, but it was, it was, it was an effort. 
And I have given them stuff financially. I've taken care of them. And I will continue to, to try to be a help and a blessing. And when I die, whatever's left, that will be theirs. I watch and pay attention to their life. It matters to me. Not of any kind of pride, I just, uh, I want them to do well. And when they do, it makes me happy. I, I kind of feel like the court of heaven. I kind of want to join in their happiness and sing a song with them. Makes my heart glad. When they sing, I sing. It's kind of the way it works. I don't have a harp, <clears throat> so I can't harp, I can't harp a harp or harpy, you know, whatever he's doing, but I can, I can smile great big and, in other words, it's noticed, and it feels very honoring that they've not defiled their own name and not defiled mine. They didn't stain it, pollute it, besmirch it by forsaking God and forsaking their faith. It's a big deal to me. That's what God wants from us. We bear His reputation. And He has His own. We, we can't. We can't harm it, but we can sure reflect it poorly. You know what he wants for us? The same thing you want from your kids. Honoring. You bear his name. He's going to be there for you no matter what. But you can make him sing and smile by bearing that name, carrying that name in an honorable way. That's what real Christians do. They realize that no matter what life brings, that's my dad. I reflect his, his reputation. I've got to maintain this contrast. And so, God help us, no matter what comes. Because I'm telling you, you, we don't know what's coming, but this is the way Christians live. So, Lord, help us to live that way. Let me ask you to stand with me, if you would.